My brother got chased by a tumbleweed once. Matt knows what a tumbleweed is. Mandolin Matt, that is. He's back there. He's laughing. Got a picture up here. If you don't know what that is, what a tumbleweed is. You're probably wondering how an inanimate object can actually chase a person, but you just have to live it to understand it can happen. It's amazing. The tumbleweed is um, it's an amazing weed. It can grow very, very quickly, like a lot of weeds can. But sometimes it's amazing how quickly they can grow. I used to mow lawns and do landscaping. And I would, I would uh, you know, every once in a while, I'd get a call from someone. And they'd say, uh, yeah, <clears throat> got a few weeds in the alley. Could you go back and kind of chop them down? Because it might have been one of the rare weeks in Lubbock, Texas, where I'm from, where it would rain. And th- these tumbleweeds have the ability to suck all the water away from everything else and into themselves and grow so quickly, I would sometimes show up and these would be, these weeds would be waist high. And there I am with a string trimmer, you know. So I have to get out the side. And they, listen, they fight back. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've heard some people say that like if you cut down a tree, like it screams, you know. I've heard people say that like if you have like sensors hooked up to it, can you hear it screaming? They laugh. You start chopping at them, yeah, I can almost just hear them laughing. And what ha- they, they have this uh, stuff in them, you know, it's milky stuff. So, you know, when you're chopping away, the stuff's just squirting all over you. If you don't have allergies, by the time you're done, you will. I mean, they're just all over you. And what they do is they grow up and they're nice and green and fluffy. They don't look like that. But they have a root system underneath and they have this big flowering part on top. And so what they do is they, they kind of run their course, they live, they suck all the nutrients and water from everything else, squirt stuff on people when they're trying to chop them down, just, you know, there's mean things, and then they die. And when they die, what happens is they break off. And now, if, 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 we, if, if they were in Knoxville, that would be no big deal, right? It would break off, sit there, right? Two weeks later, still sitting there, right? (laughs) Unless water makes it float away. But otherwise, it's not going anywhere. But in in Lubbock, Texas, uh, it is most assuredly going to be blown away. And they have, they grow in in a perfect, I mean, just like a sphere. And you can see what they look like there. They grow into a sphere. And they're they're very, very strong things. I mean, they, they don't, you, you know, they slam into a car. No big deal. Just jumps over it. Does like a Dukes of Hazard thing over the hood. And it's off. They're not afraid of any human being, any lawnmower, any string trimmer, any head trimmer. They're not afraid of any of that. And once they die and break off, they don't care. They're already dead, right? So whatever damage they do, no big deal. And one time, my little brother, he was something like that. Maybe my... Son's age, six, five, something like that. And he's riding his bike. And, and it was one of those windy days in, in uh, <clears throat> spring, um, which is, you, that means we're talking 35, 40 mile an hour winds instead of, you know, the normal 20, 25. So, uh, and he's outside playing. And, uh, and, and something happens, what, what ha- you know, in Lubbock, Texas, this happens all the time, but it's called a whirlwind. So uh, a lot of times you'll, you'll look out in a, a cotton field 
and you'll see what looks like a tornado. Uh, it's much smaller, but no clouds. But there it is in the field, and it's kind of that brown red or reddish dirt, depending on where you are. And it, it's like a little tornado. It's what it looks like, and it moves around like that. It's like a, we call them dust devils. And he got caught up in one of those and kind of blew him around. And then he, he looked behind him, and, he, and a, a big tumbleweed. Can you imagine being six years old? He's like this tall, and this thing is as tall as he is or taller. And it's like really coming after him, you know, because the wind is turning and going different directions. That's how the, the whirlwind happens. That's how the dust devil happens. So it seems like everywhere he turns, tumbleweed follows. He goes this way, tumbleweed follows. He was crying hysterical. I mean, I walk outside, and he's crying. Ah! He's running toward me, you know. The tumbleweed was chasing him. And he still talks about that to this day. Do you have anything like that in your life that you... A mother-in-law got chased by a chicken that's head cut off. She still talks about that. I mean, they, these things scar us, don't they? I want to read verse 1 of Ruth uh, just real quickly. We're going to start with verse 1. I love Ruth. Um, I've always loved Ruth. It's, a, it's, a, it, it's written like a, you know, a story, short story. It's, and so it reads like that. And, but that's not the only reason. I also like the name Ruth. It's a real satisfying name to say, Ruth. Like it has an actual ending. It doesn't end in ah or anything like that. You know? Isaiah. It's Ruth. Resolution at the end. I like it. But I also love, love the characters in this story. So I just want to start. We're going to go through through all the verses in chapter 1. And and we're going to go through the story together. And I want to tell you, so to some of you, it might, it might even be new. I mean, we've all heard of Ruth, right? We've seen the little rings that say, where you go, I will follow, it, since it's written in Hebrew or something. I mean, it, it, we've heard of Ruth. I heard of Ruth all my life, but it was just history. Uh, it was just history to me. Uh, it, was, it was background knowledge to me. It was just uh, stuff I needed to know so that I could get to the important stuff. But that's really not what it is. In the days when the judges ruled, uh, there was a famine in the land, and, a, and a, a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So have you ever uh, been in a famine? Have you ever seen a famine? I mean, that's, how, that's an old-fashioned word, right? We don't really use that much. Yeah, we had a famine. But you know what word we do use? I mean, we see it on TV, right? A famine. There's a, I mean... You, you know, different parts of the world going without food, going without water, going without the things that we need to stay alive, and the things that livestock need to stay alive, and the things that, you know, the envi- you know, plants, trees, all the things around us need to stay alive. Those things are no longer there, and that's a famine. But have you ever seen one? Now, I haven't, you know, I've never seen one to that extent, but I, I have seen a drought. And, and we, now, here in Knoxville, I heard someone the other day say, we had a drought a couple of years ago. Ooh, it's a drought. But let me tell you what a drought's like, uh, really. Um, in 2011, uh, in Lubbock, Texas, there was a drought. 
Okay, so let me explain what that means. Uh, in Lubbock, Texas, you don't get a lot of rain. So if you get 20 inches, you know, you're doing good in a year. And the dry time is, of course, from, you know, about November to the end of spring, you know, or uh, right around the beginning of June. That's the dry time. And, but even during the dry time, you might get up to 10 inches or something like that. But in 2011, there was one inch for all the, those months. One. Just one. One inch of rain. One inch of rain. Can you imagine what happens to one inch of rain when it hits the ground, the dry, cracking ground? I actually went back to visit. Every summer I go back to visit my family. And my brother, he does, or he did, landscaping there. And I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding. I went to help him. There were still people who wanted their dead grass mowed, mown, however, whatever. They wanted it. They wanted the mower to run over it. I don't know. But, I mean, when you stepped out on that grass, you could hear it crackling. Kind of like bubble wrap, right? Except it's grass. And you could smell it burning. The smell of grass burning everywhere. You just stepped outside. And you look in people's yards. They're not on fire, but it's like they're almost. I mean, they're about to ignite, right? And you can see the heat coming up and it, it distorts everything around you. That's what a drought was like. And the cotton fields, they're not yielding anything. Now you can, you can uh, irrigate and that is the only way cotton can grow out there is irrigation but, or grow well. But you can only do so much. There is rain that is needed. And so what's happening is there's no moisture to hold the soil down. So as soon as the wind starts blowing, the soil's in the air and it stays. It just stays in the air all the time. So you look out in the horizon and it's just brown all the time. Now, I, you've probably heard of, of, you know, these disasters out on the highways, car pileups. Um, I know that when we lived in Florida, there was a really bad one on I-4. Um, and it was because of fog and smoke together. Well, in Lubbock, out on one of our little highways, there was a, there was a, a car pileup because of dust. People couldn't see. They were driving, and the dust between the, the farms on both sides got so bad that they had, they had a car pileup. And it, it, was a, it was the kind where people die. It was a, it was a terrible accident. Uh, you know, involving, you know, the, the kind that involves like 30 cars. So that's, that's what I think of when I think of drought. So, of course, the cotton farmers are not making money. Um, and the economy is suffering. And this is what's happening. It says in the days of the judges. And if you, if you read Judges, you will see that um, that's a pretty dark time for Israel. The time of the judges... Uh, from the time that Joshua died to the time that Saul becomes king, when he's anointed king, Israel's ruled by judges. It sounds so cool. In the time of the judges. So it sounds uh, Lord of the Ringish or something. But, but it's, it, it explains, there's so much said in that. So they're not, it's not just a famine physically. It's really a famine spiritually. It's a famine that's causing things to dry up, 
break off, blow away. I want to read verse 2. Let's look at verse 2 here. All right. Uh, Let's see. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Have you ever had a famine in your soul? It sounds sort of, you know, overly poetic, but, but think, think, think back on a time in your life when you were dry. When all of the things that you had that you set your hope on and the things that sustained you don't anymore. I mean, things are cracking. They're so dry. You can't run to the safety that at once you had or the person, or the whatever the good thing was that is now gone. So you're having a drought. Not the kind of drought you have in in a subtropic, but I mean a drought. Things are starting to break off in your life, get crispy, and blow away. And then they're gone, and they don't come back. I mean, I had a time like that, and I, I was young, and I ran off to Myrtle Beach um, because Myrtle Beach was going to solve all my problems. And I was going to come back refreshed and full because, see, I was empty. I was dry. And so I ran away. And what I did is I ran away from church. I was a my church family that I grew up in. Uh, I ran away from my biological family. Mom and dad, okay, you did your job. I'm good now. Actually, I wasn't. Um, and I ran away from that, and I ran to something else. The only problem was uh, I ran with uh, a couple of people who kind of compounded the problem. I was kind of so running from basically God and, and, and the family I had there and ran toward people that didn't really worship and ran with people that didn't worship God. They didn't worship God. They worshiped other things and I worshiped those things with them. And I, and I started to practice those things. And I mean practice in both, you know, both definitions of the word. One is just doing them. The other is doing them to get better at them, right? Practicing and, and really, that's, what, that's what's happening here. That's what's happening in Ruth. 
Elimelech means my God is king. Ruth has a lot of irony in it. Isn't that ironic? Alanis Morissette. Your age is showing. Okay, sorry. Um, isn't that ironic? That was a song where she names a lot of things that aren't really ironic. They're just unfortunate. But that doesn't make a good song. Isn't that unfortunate? So, but I, this is irony. Irony is what should happen doesn't. The unexpected, the reverse happens. My God is king. So he leaves and runs. He leaves Bethlehem. Bethlehem's called, uh, that, that word means uh, house of bread. So, but Bethlehem is in a drought, I mean a, a famine. There is no bread. That's ironic. He goes to Moab to get bread. But Moab is a place that worships other gods. They don't. They didn't worship God. They didn't worship the God of, of the Israelites. They didn't worship Yahweh. They worshiped other gods. And so they were in in that land, but instead of getting bread, they're not getting, they're not getting bread. Instead, his sons have to marry uh, foreign women, which in that time was kind of like saying, Okay, we're not set apart anymore. We're just going to conform to the world around us. And God was busy. And at that particular time in the big story, he was busy gathering this people to himself who would show what the world, show to, God, show to the world what God is like by the way that they lived and how they treated foreigners. But intermarrying was not something that they were to do because they would surely be uh, persuaded to worship the foreign gods so I understand that now because I remember it happening I wasn't around the people who nurtured me and who, who encouraged me to worship God and to trust Jesus for my peace and my bread and I, and I was with people who encouraged me because this is all they knew I mean they're just lost people being lost right that's what lost people do. And they're, they're encouraging me to worship other things, other gods. And encouraging me to get really good at it. And I'm going right along with it. We get that from our mom and dad, Adam and Eve. You thought I meant your mom and dad, right? It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, as usual. We have to reference Genesis because that helps us understand uh, the Bible, how to read it. It begins pointing to Jesus immediately in Genesis. But one thing that we get from Adam and Eve is that they did the same thing. Because what did they do after they sinned? What did they do after things were going wrong? They ran and hid. And they tried to do things for themselves. They sewed up some little fig leaves and stuff and they tried to hide. Well, see, there's a famine in Bethlehem and, and Ruth doesn't really say it. Uh, it doesn't say that the famine is a judgment of God. But in the Old Testament, there are so many examples of famine being uh, related to and associated with judgment. 
And instead of just repenting and taking care of it and facing things, facing your sin, what we like to do is run and hide. And then maybe God won't see us. Like I didn't think God, you know, maybe God won't see me in Myrtle Beach. It's so far away. It was the first time I'd ever seen the ocean. Uh, well, okay, I lived in Alaska when I was a little kid, so I saw it. But first time I'd seen it as an as a almost adult. I just thought, this is great. This is awesome. God won't see me. So isn't it ironic then that that Elimelech died because the reason he moved to Moab was so that he wouldn't die. Now, it doesn't say why he died, but it does say it. And it, and it says it in a, in a certain order so that you, one could infer that he died prematurely. I don't know. It doesn't say. See, he did die, though, and she's still alive. His two sons died. Okay, that's premature. And they're young. They're sons. They both died. Uh, Let's go ahead and read. I want to go to verse 6 and 7. Okay, here we go. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law and returned from the country of Moab. Okay. This is interesting. For, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So God was, God was already on his way, wasn't he? God was, he was planning on rescuing them. So she set out from the place where she had... Uh, where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way and returned to the land of Judah. Isn't that interesting? Have, have you ever had to wait for something? I, re- I, mean, I, know that's, I know that's true. I know it's a rhetorical question, but I want you to think about that. When is, when is a time that, you, that you've had to actually really wait for something that you couldn't see coming? Like... You, You've been promised it. God, God has already promised that he's going to rescue his people. He tells us that if they turn to him and repent, he would heal their land. He's, he, this, is, these are, this is the promise of God. Uh, he's coming. He's going to rescue. But you can't see it coming. He didn't tell you when. Have you ever waited for something, but you didn't know when it was going to come? Maybe a... Uh, Maybe a baby. Or a husband. Or a wife. Um, a check in the mail. <laughs> a job. What have you had to wait for? You know, uh, the Thornbergs aren't here this morning because uh, Lindsay and Jeremy had a little baby, Adeline. Uh, yesterday and it was really a tense situation because her platelets had been low and so it was getting dangerous they and this had been going on for weeks 
And so she's going to the doctor and, and they're having to uh, give her steroids and they're having to give her transfusions and they're, and, and they're saying, oh, if the platelets are low, then this could be dangerous in, in delivery. Uh, you know, the blood won't clot and this could happen to the child. And so they're waiting and we're praying. And then the time comes and so she has, she has a C-section yesterday. But listen, I can't imagine being Jeremy. Now, and, and I know that, that it, Lindsay, they put her out. So <laughs> that's why I'm saying Jeremy because they had to put her under and, and then they do the C-section. Jeremy's just waiting. Can you imagine what that wait is like? He doesn't know what the outcome is going to be. He has to wait. There's no, he has no control anymore just waiting and then we're all waiting we're waiting to hear because right before she went in for delivery her platelets were lower than they were the week before like down to 80,000 I don't know what that means when I hear platelet I always think of little saucers like tiny plates or something floating around in the blood I'm a visual person but I know it helps the blood clot but um, they were unusually low so it was like well, guess what? God came through. Of course. He, I mean, he always comes through however he chooses to come through. In this particular instance, he chose to protect that baby, to deliver it safely, and for Lindsay to be safe and healthy. So she's recovering. He rescued her. We had to wait for that. And, of course, the doctor said, you know, and he's probably right. I don't know. He said something like, like the, uh, well, the platelets were low, but they were all really good platelets. So the ones she had were super strong, I guess. I don't know. But I know God was at work in that. That's waiting. Ooh. So God rescued Bethlehem. He actually gives physical bread to the house of bread. Of course, we know that he's the bread of life. Let's read uh, uh, verse 8. All right. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. Okay. Here's my favorite, this whole section here, 8 through 18. My favorite part of Ruth and maybe my favorite part of the Bible. I don't know. It's in the running. Ecclesiastes, I love it. Psalms, love it. Proverbs, love it. But this, this is one of my favorite scriptures in the entire Bible. It's beautiful. But, but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the, with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. I want you to imagine this scene. They grew up. I mean, they, they married her, her sons. They became a, a family. And now she's saying, go. Rebecca and I were watching this little uh, series that, is, you know, it's kind of old now. But it's that guy. Oh, what's his name? He's got a little handlebar mustache. He always, it's always about something for 30 days. Is that what it's called, 30 days? Is that? All right. So anyway, this guy lives in this house of, of uh, illegal immig uh, immigrants for 30 days. And then when he leaves, there are tears. 
he has to live there because he, he was like politically, you know, he, he was against the, the idea of, of, of illegal immigrants being in the country. So that's the whole idea is the tension. But then by the time he leaves, they all, you know, they, they all love each other. They're hugging each other and he's, and he's tearing up. And the men are tearing up and, and, and they're crying. And I want you to imagine this. They lifted their voices and they wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I uh, yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? I mean, she starts reasoning in a really weird, kind of weird way here, you know? I mean, she's thinking logically. And that's how we like to solve our problems. If we can just figure it out and control the outcome, we just feel a lot better about that. And she's like, listen, this isn't going to work out. Am I going to be able to have sons that grow up and be your husbands? How's this going to work? Because she's destitute now. She has no husband and no sons. That is how you survived. She, doesn't, she's, she is completely, completely poor in the truest sense of the word. Poor. If I should say I have hope, even, I, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons. Like Naomi, okay, okay. You know, it's like, she's really getting into detail there. Uh, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Interesting. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Opa kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Before I move on, this is getting to, the, to my absolute favorite part, but I wanted to point out the Eeyore uh, complex. Y'all watch Winnie the Pooh, right? You ever seen Winnie the Pooh? Who doesn't love Eeyore? I love Eeyore. His tail is pinned on. That's a, that's a great detail. That's awesome. Eeyore is the one that always says... Well, I guess I'll go on my way. Don't want to bother you. I have a lot of people, uh, you know. Have you ever met someone like that at work? You know? Everything is, they respond to everything like Eeyore. How are you doing today? Well, it's Monday. Can't wait till Friday. It's Monday all day. And then it's Tuesday, you know. We have a meeting today. I've done that before. <laughs> Eeyore. That's what she, this is what Naomi's doing. She's turned into Eeyore here. She's like, the hand of the Lord. She's going back to Bethlehem where there's food because God has rescued his people and shown up. And she is going back because now she can. She followed the leadership of her husband right into a place where uh, things didn't work out because they were running from God and not repenting and he died and they died and now she gets to go back and but instead of man I can't, I can't wait to see what God does to rescue me she's like I'm going back to Bethlehem Lord has been bitter go on your way and they cling to her they clung to her I mean they're holding on to her And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. So 
return after your sister-in-law. So one of them decides, okay, you talk me into it, I'm gone. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. <laughs> wow, and where, and there I will be buried. I will be buried. I will, where you die, I will die. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. What is, what is a family? I know your pictures are coming in your mind of people. You know, that's a big question uh, politically nowadays. What is a family? I mean, in our culture, that, what, you know, typically what we've thought is family is now being challenged. Well, maybe that's not, you know, people are saying, no, that, that traditional view of family, that's not what it is. It's something else. Let's define family. W- what is it? <clears throat> is it someone you're uh, related to by blood? Is it someone you just know really well? You've known all your life. I, I knew some kids uh, when, I was, uh, when I was a kid, some kids I played with, I would ask them, who's that? And they'd say, that's my cousin. And then I found out later, they weren't cousins. Really. Because to me, you know, I grew up, a cousin was actually, like, you could trace the blood. But to them, that, that wasn't the case. It was... This family, it was a cousin was just someone you wanted to be your cousin, and they were like cousins. They were close, you know. They had a bond. What about the mafia? You know, they call themselves family, right? Is it just someone you do something with, like crime, <laughs> or something better than that? Um, something you go along with, you know, someone with, and they become family, you know. It's usually what you say to someone when they've become so close to you. You go, you're family to me. So, so what is it then? We go ahead and go to Mark 3. We're going to see what Jesus says family is. <clears throat> now, Jesus actually talks a lot about family. And his mother and his brothers came. This is this is the first time I realized Jesus wasn't always that nice. Sometimes he was kind of rude. I'm like, Jesus, this is rude. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they, they sent to him and called him. This is his mom, right? Your mom calls, you, you go, right? And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? How rude. 
And, and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, I really, when I first read that, I thought, ah, oh, that is, that's hurtful, you know. <laughs> that's, how, Jesus? Because he didn't hustle around and get out there and talk to mom. I hope he made his way finally, or, you know. But he had to make this point first. Now, at first glance, this just doesn't really, this doesn't really, this, uh, <clears throat> you might get the wrong idea. So I don't want to. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay here for a minute. I, I, wanna, I really want to talk about what family is because that is a lot of what helps us understand Ruth. It also helps us understand how, why, why Ruth helps us understand the gospel and why it helps us see Jesus better. Otherwise, it's just lip service. Because we can always say that. The whole Bible points to Jesus. Well, let's see why, how. Family is not just a group of people who have gotten close to each other and become really good friends. Okay? It's not that. Not just that. Not that alone. Family is not only people you are related to by blood. Okay? That's not... Because this is... Uh, I want to tell you, Jesus is proving it here. It's not just that. But you say, yeah, but Jesus said, look into those around him, hey, these are my friends, these are my disciples. They're family, right? Is that where it stops? Well, what about Adoption. I mean, we have, um, there's Chase. I see him sitting back there in the back. Chase and Charlie, the Plogs, their family adopted Levi. So now he's a Plog. He was adopted. He became family. So he is family. He's completely family. He's adopted. We have uh, some of us here in, in Legacy, uh, foster, take children into their homes, and even for a temporary time, if it's temporary, adopt them. Giving them all the blessings and privileges that come with being born into the family. So who... Who's born into the family of God first? Who's that? Crickets? No. I, I know. I, did, I, that's, I, I made it sound like it's rhetorical. It's Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn. So when we're adopted into the kingdom, into the family of God, then we share and all the blessings, all the privileges, all of the love that are rightfully, that rightfully belong to the firstborn, to the naturally born, to the, the one who really, by blood, is family. And that's Jesus. 
So Jesus is not just talking to the people around him, creating a new clique, club, or group of people. He's actually, he's talking about adoption here. Because you're not, you don't belong to God without that. You don't belong to him without adoption. When he rescues you, he adopts you and he takes you in. He gives you all the privileges of your big brother. And it's not because you earned anything. When I think about little Noah, uh, Matt and Shannon, Matt, Matt, and shenanigans have taken a little uh, Noah into their house. What has Noah done to be such a great guy? I mean, I love it. I mean, just looking like a little burrito, that's enough for me. But but has he done anything else? Can he do anything to earn his way into their home, really? In fact, children are helpless. This is how God has chosen for us to be fruitful and multiply, that children would be born into the world helpless, completely depending on the parents for everything. And so in that same way, we can't earn anything. There's no uh, good life that we can live. There's no good seeking that we can do that's going to earn us. We have to be adopted. It has to come from God. And so this beautiful scripture here, where Naomi finally said she saw that she was determined to go with her, and she said no more. She adopted her. Or the adoption process begins, I'll say it that way. Because later in Ruth, as you'll see, we're going to have... this whole series all the way through Ruth. Uh, Spencer Teal will be here next week and then uh, I'll be preaching and then uh, Luke will be back and um, you'll see how the adoption process begins here and how it's resolved by the end of Ruth. So that is amazing to me. So Jesus, he's not just making a new click, he's actually explaining what family really is. So he's not kicking his mom, hey, mother and brothers, you're out. New disciples are in, you know. This is my movement thing. You know, you know he did, that's not what's going on. He is explaining to people, hey, this is actually what family is. Let me, let me elaborate. It's not just my mother and brothers. It's those who do the will of God. And those who do the will of God are those who have been adopted into his family. And it's through the blood of Christ that you become family. So think of Jesus on the cross then because he took that idea all the way, all the way to when he was on the cross. I'd like to read John 19, uh, 26 through 27. This is amazing to me. when I think of it in light of adoption. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, I guess that was polite back then, 
Behold your son. But he wasn't. John wasn't uh, her son. Behold your son. Then he said to the disciples, Behold your mother. To the disciple, not disciples. To that disciple. He said, Behold, this is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. And I know that at first glance, that, that just sounds like, well, she needed a place to live. Yeah. But Jesus, again, is redefining family. As he's on the cross, as he is making it possible for us to be adopted, as he's becoming the firstborn, or, you know, when he, when he rises from the tomb, that's when he becomes that, he is talking about family. He's telling his, his, his mom, this is your son. And John, this is your mom now. What a beautiful picture of family. Well, um, I'm going to go ahead and, and as we get close to the end here, um, I'm going to read uh, verse 19 through 22. Um, we're getting near the end of just the first chapter. And then I want to ask you some questions. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, and the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me, Eeyore again, <laughs> you know. I went away full. That makes you, things that make you good. I used to watch this comedian named Arsenio Hall. Whoa, age is showing again. He, he had sort of crooked hair and went, yo, yo, dog. And he used to have this, things that make you go, hmm. And that was part of his little comedy. He would say something and be like, things that make you go, hmm. And then there was like this song. Okay, old. Uh, this makes me go, hmm. The Almighty, he said, I went away full. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? Naomi means pleasant. Um, and she's saying, no, don't call me that. Call me Mara, which means bitter. You ever met someone like that? Have you ever met someone that, and now they may not have said it that way, but they might as well have said, my name is bitter. And I'm bitter with life. You're like, whew. No, the loving thing to do is not to avoid you, but... And you work right next to me, great. Bitter. They want you to know it. But that's ironic. She says she went away full. How's that possible? There was a, a famine in Bethlehem. People are dying and starving. And she, she said she went away full. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time 
making sense of that. And then he's brought her back empty. Okay, all right, I get that. But my theory is she went away empty, (laughs) not full. She went away empty and came back empty. She went away empty to Moab because her husband thought that they were going to get filled that way and it didn't happen. Uh, It turns out that God is the one that fills you and he didn't call it the house of bread for nothing. It is the house of bread. It's where the bread of life would come from. It's where physical bread would come from. It's where people worshipped him. So think about that. Um... When you are feeling empty, what do you do? Where do you run? Do you run to music? That was my thing. One of my many things. Um... Books, movies, uh, food, friends, solitude. Familiarity, something that's the same. Run the nature? Do you... What do you do? What do you run to? And when you do, think about this, every time you do it, uh, how do you feel after you've run to it? Has it filled you up? You come back satisfied, full. Or do you come back empty? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem. At the, I love this. I love the way it ends. It couldn't be better than this. At the beginning of barley harvest. So she's dragged. I mean, just it's Eeyore all the way. I'm bitter. Uh, she comes in. It's harvest time. God is bringing his people food. She's Bitter, dragging her feet back, just like we do. I'm glad that she's honest. I mean, because I, I know that it's kind of like the, the Eeyore complex versus the unrealistic person complex. They're the ones that always say, like if you ask them how they're doing, they never really tell you. They just say, too blessed to be depressed. Which should be true. I mean, I'm not saying there's no truth to that. I'm just saying it's one of those quick answers. Huh? I am blessed and highly favored. Well, good. I'm glad. I, I mean, can you elaborate? Tell me a little about that. <laughs> so uh, as the worship team comes up, I want to uh, 
I want to lead us here now into this part of, of the service where we're going to take communion. We've got a couple of tables in the back. And we have bread. There's some bread there. And we have juice. It represents the blood. It's two things that are really important to understand. Ruth, bread, blood. Okay? Uh, bread, the house of bread. Can you think about this for a second? The Bible says that we're, uh, we're a house being built with living stones, right? So you know that, that we don't, the church is not the walls, thank goodness, because <laughs> we're in an auditorium. I like it and everything, but I mean, you know, there's gum under the seats. Don't check. It's a high school. It's not the walls, it's not the structure, it's living stones, the Bible says. That's what, that's what the house of God is. And it's a house of what? Bread. What bread? Not just the delicious little morsels of bread back there. The bread of life. That's what Jesus is. That's what he is. And he was broken. So we can be adopted. That's something to celebrate. I hope that when you go back there, you go back there with your spouse or with your family or, or a community member. Uh, if you're here alone, just go back there by yourself. That's fine. We want you to be welcome. This is something that we as the, in the house of God do, as we as the body of Christ do together. And think about the blood. That's how we sometimes identify each other biologically as family. But Jesus, what he actually did is emptied himself. He spilled his blood. And that's how we become family. That's how come I can be, that's the way that I can be brothers with David. Otherwise, I don't know if we'd know each other. I mean, will we run into each other? I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I don't design things with pipes and stuff, and he's not an art, he's not a teacher, he's not an artist. So would we know each other? No, but we can be brothers. We're brothers because of the blood of Christ. And the cool thing is, we get to do what Naomi did, and we get to call people in. I mean, well, or what Ruth did, and go in. <laughs> and then Naomi did receive her and, and said, yeah, yeah, you, you will be my daughter. And later you see how that actually happens through a redeemer. But that's how we become, that's how we call people in who are not in our family, not in the family of God. They're not in the kingdom. We don't call them in through our personalities and through our wonderful words and actions, but through the wonderful words and actions of Jesus. Of the one who gives us all the rights and privileges of family and all the blessings and all the love that goes with it. And then as David says in the Psalms, we get to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever. 